Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. You have entered Back from the Borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. Welcome back to the pod, everyone. It is so lovely to have you back here with me, my friend. I wonder what you're doing. Are you enjoying your morning, your evening, wherever you are located in this fine world? I am looking at the map of our listeners. We just surpassed 3,000 downloads, and it has been just a couple of months that we've been doing this and using my analytics that I have to see the podcast views and downloads, I can also see where our listeners are located and you guys are all over the world. I can't quite believe it. So yeah, welcome back. I love that our community is growing. What you'll hear today is my interview with Kabir Karana. Kabir is a 21-year-old philosophy student from London who is currently living with and recovering from BPD. Kabir followed me on Instagram, but yeah, Kabir and I connected. I thought they were hilarious. I loved the posts that they shared. And immediately I had a gut feeling that the podcast audience would really resonate with their story. If you're not already aware, the BPD community is desperately in need of more diverse representation the experiences of individuals of color and those in the queer community need to be shared to gain a deeper and more full understanding of how BPD affects all of us. Now, this wouldn't be a Molly episode if I didn't get nerdy for a second. It's a well-known fact that queer people have poorer mental health than the heterosexual population, mainly due to discrimination, finding it difficult to access services, and so on. A recent study was the first to focus on the prevalence of same-sex relationships in addition to the prevalence of homosexual and bisexual orientation in patients with BPD. This same study found that patients with BPD were approximately twice as likely to report having a sexual relationship with a same-sex partner as comparison subjects with other personality disorders. Results of this study suggest that further research is necessary to clarify the relationship between BPD and sexual orientation, as well as choice of sexual partner. 
taken together, the results of this study suggest that homosexual and bisexual orientation and same-sex intimate relationships are very common among both male and female borderline patients. This conversation with Kabir meant a lot to me because I myself have struggled with the topic of my own queerness, which I will talk about at length in another episode. Today is all about Kabir and their story. I just know that regardless of who you are or how you identify, if you struggle with BPD, you will learn a lot from this incredible human being. So without further ado, let's jump right in to my Kiki with Kabir. Hi, my name is Kabir. I'm 21 and I'm a philosophy student from London. I identify as a non-binary gay, a them, a person. God, I, I'm already fucking this up, aren't I? But yeah, that's, perfect. that's me. <laughs> that's me. What are your preferred pronouns? I'm kind of an any pronouns um, type of gal. So he, I him, they, them, she, her, anything. I'm really not fussy. <laughs> she does not mind. <laughs> she does not mind at all. So maybe you can tell me about how you came across the podcast. Actually, one of my friends recently got diagnosed with BPD after quite a rough patch. She ended up following like a lot of BPD recovery pages and sharing that to her story. And so I just kept seeing your stories through that and really, really liked the content, what you had to post because it was done. I really like that you don't you don't sugarcoat shit. You don't beat around the bush and you kind of say it how it is in a way that isn't there to mollycoddle us and to, um, to hold us accountable for where we need to be held accountable so we can improve on ourselves. So I really enjoyed that. And then from there, just followed it, followed you and the rest is history. We're here now. Walk me through what resonated with you about the post. What made you start to think that you might struggle with BPD or identify with BPD traits? So I got diagnosed about a year and a half ago, but I had been suspecting that I had it since I was about 15 or 16. But in the UK, they can't diagnose you with a personality disorder until you're 18. I had had just a rather tumultuous childhood to say the least but um mm. it was definitely one where like as a result of that I was I was aware of like having mental health issues from a very young age I first recognized that I had some kind of vague signs of depression when I was only about 10 and I like started self-harming when I was 11 mm. um and it was a very isolating thing because I was a very quiet sheltered not particularly confident kid at the time when I kind of moved schools at 13 all of a sudden that really changed and I became a lot more confident and a lot more outspoken and a lot more comfortable in myself. I came out, but along with that came probably my first bout of really severe um, depression. And it was a really, mm. really long time. And that lasted about a year or so before I was able to pull myself out of it. And at that point I was just in some kind of like NHS therapy um, and like, God bless the NHS, but their mental health services aren't particularly great. Why Why was it so rough on under the NHS trying to seek treatment for your mental health? I think A, it was just an incredibly long process. B, like if I get told like mindfulness in the Calm app, like I understand mindfulness is like an actual recovery technique. But in the way that I was being told by the NHS, mindfulness was like, you know, the Calm or the Headspace app. Mm-hmm. Like if I get told that that was going to cure my mental health issues one more time, I swear to God, I was going to cut every therapist I ever had. People throw these concepts at you that are actually true, but they don't say it in a way that you could even begin to understand. Like saying, you need to be in the present moment. You need to do mindfulness. And guess what? Those actually are the major keys. Those are the hacks. But mm. we have to address the underlying core beliefs, you know, like the stuff, the trauma first before we can start fixing things and putting in new behaviors in place. We have to heal the hurt that's underneath all of it. And I feel like when I was, participating in the NHS, it felt like a little bit of a conveyor belt, which as you've said before, they have to, they're underfunded and overwhelmed, but it's unfortunate that it leads to what happened with you, which is just feeling like probably just a little bit more invalidated than before, but I don't want to speak on your behalf, but carry no, on from definitely. there. I, I really agree. And I, I think I had a family environment because um, I think had I been closer with my mom at the time who I'm a lot closer with now I probably could have been able to get more help but at least on my dad's side of the family there was no real interest in looking after me or my mental health because they didn't really see mental health as that much of a real thing for them I was just a teenager who was acting out and being spoiled and doing drugs and partying too late and stuff mm -hmm. like that and like I, I also get where they were coming from but 
there was this huge refusal to admit the part that they had had to play in that. I did the same thing. When I was younger, I, I started hanging out with probably a little bit of a dangerous crowd, sneaking out and drinking to the point where I had to go to the hospital once. Did you almost want your parents to pay attention? What was behind that risky behavior, do you think? As opposed to it being a cry for help, because I knew that the way that those kind of cries would have been met with would have not been met with compassion. It would have been met with punishment, anger, retribution, mm -hmm. um, a kind of moralistic standpoint, which I, I don't really believe in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wasn't, I don't think it was so much a cry for help, at, at least for my parents, but it was more just extreme escapism in any way, shape or form. And I think part of it was also like the days of like depression tumbler. Yes. Like, it, like I was in that age. So it was very easy for me to kind of overly romanticize and fetishize my own sadness because it was the only coping mechanism I really had at the time. And, you know, like I blame Lana Del Rey for everything. Honestly, the whole sad girl era that that was so popular during that time, I can relate exactly. to. And, and a lot of people, they felt so misunderstood by they, their parents that they go within, right? And then they go and seek support from this online community of people that are just as fully identified with their own sadness as you are. And so it's like if you, you actually almost don't want to get better at that point because that's what your whole identity and friend group is built around. It's better than nothing because it's better than I'm sure sitting there and feeling so alone. There's an element of feeling like you're part of something, but then it's almost like your mental health becomes your whole identity to a certain extent. Exactly. And yeah. And I, I think even at that point, I probably, because at this age I'm talking about, I was only 13 or so at this point. Mm. So tell me about this young childhood FP. I had kind of only recently come out, probably like eight, nine months into coming out. How old and were one you? Of my, I was 13. Wow. Okay. That's I, pretty I young out. to come out. I mean, honestly, there was no hiding it with me. Like I was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have blue hair and tattoos now, but I was a lot camper back then. Like you could, you could see it from across the room. No, it was brilliant. I mean, it was, it was, it was like, it was high camp because I think I was totally unaware of it at the same time. <laughs> Um, so I was speaking to my friend and obviously when you're 13, especially being queer, like you don't really get to have any romantic experiences. It's not as easy. And also like, I was a chubby little brown kid at like a kind of very, in a very kind of white dominated privilege group of people, which is like, mm. so one of my friends was like, oh, I know this guy. He goes to, um, this boarding school. He's in the closet gay. I think you guys would get on really well. And so we started speaking a little bit. And immediately I just fell in love, completely mm. obsessed for about like two years. And he was my best friend, but I was, I mean, it was the strongest feelings I've ever had for anyone up until like, including like now present day. Like when I told them that I liked them, obviously it didn't go that well. It didn't go to plan. And the reason I got was a, like, they were like, Oh, I don't want to ruin the friendship. But the thing that really like kind of fucked me up at the time is that they were like, you have a lot of issues and I feel like you would drag me down into your darkness <gasps> with me. And I was oh, 13. Shit. I did not need that. How did it feel to hear that? I mean, honestly, I like, obviously it was devastating. Like it really, really was very devastating. Every part of me was like, fuck you. But um, we, we remained friends for like a couple years. And um, now he's just, you know, a friend that I occasionally see who's not really like a big part of my life, but still someone that I care about, you know? When someone almost confirms that you're too much, and you love them and you know that they're not just saying it to hurt you and it's the truth that those yeah. have been some of the most painful times in my life and so i can i can relate to that because it, you're a part of you is like well where's the lie exactly and it wasn't from someone who was actively trying to hurt me it wasn't someone who was doing it in the same way that i think we've all had people in our lives who you know traumatized us and done it with the intention of hurting us Definitely, like up until about the age of 15 or 16, I was definitely a right little cunt too. Oh, same. Um, and offline as well. I, I think for me as well, I developed that kind of bitchiness, A, partially because I came out so early that I kind of felt obliged to. I imagine you as a 13-year-old with a velvet robe being like, I'm obliged to be a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, but essentially that, that was the case because like you know, teenagers are so formative that when, when you don't have that chance to kind of explore yourself in as who you are as a person but then you come out at the age of 13 you feel a lot more obliged to adhere to that like traditional Regina George-esque stereotype yes and I think 
And, and it's easier. It a, it's easier to protect yourself being a bitch. It was because I had, you know, not the easiest time at home. And I just all of a sudden developed a whole new sense of confidence and like a whole new kind of, I'd gone from being a very kind of sheltered, unsociable, shy kid to someone who was like going out and partying like three times a week and having like a very kind of, you know, different thing that I, something that I just really wasn't used to. And I think I developed that as a way to protect myself, especially going to an all boys school where there was like a massive alpha male environment. I was not the type just to sit in the corner and I kind of realized, well, they can't scare me if I scare them first. It was only when I was like 16 and moved schools again, I was just like, oh, I don't like that person. And I'm lucky that I like have so many friends from that school who kind of see that and see me grow and love me so much. But like, it was a time where I was, I was not the nicest person and I was kind of unnecessarily mean, unnecessarily bitchy. It sounds like you felt like you needed to turn the notch up, not because that you were just an authentically bitchy person to your soul, because <laughs> you were like, I have to almost make this theater. It was that because I could always know whether you were really talking about me or whether you were talking about the persona that I put on. Mm. And I think, and that was how I could differentiate between who really knew me and who really didn't know me. Because what you said about me and how you spoke about me really showed what sides of me you knew, whether you just knew that outward persona, which was very much that, or whether you knew the person who was there deeper down. The core belief underneath BPD is that we are unlovable, we are trash, we are unworthy. Did you feel like you just were unworthy of love? 100%. I think I was very much raised in an environment where just you, like, I mean, even though like my mom definitely tried her best, I was definitely raised in an environment where both my parents kind of taught me that love was very conditional mm-hmm. and very much played me against the other and which really made me feel like I wasn't loved, that I was trash. I mean, now that we're just speaking about it, like blessed, they're, they're very accepting, understanding people now, mm-hmm. but I just don't think they knew any better and how to handle it at the time. And I've gone through a lot of different types of abuse and the emotional and psychological abuse has always been infinitely harder than the little amounts of physical that there was. And it definitely destroyed me for a lot, lot longer. And that kind of train of shame and psychological abuse definitely continues up until this day with some parts of my family, rather unfortunately. When you had big feelings and you would go try to talk to your parents about these things, what would what would the response be? I'll go, I'll go mom first. Mom, mom's amazing. But the thing is, is that she had a really tough time too because she was married to an abusive man. Mm. And she, you know, she'd moved from India to marry this man that she had met, what, three times? The third time she met him was their wedding day. A year into it, they had had me. Um, and so mom didn't really have anyone in this country. So as a result, from a really young age, she was like emotionally dumping on me. And wow. it meant that I would, you know, as a three, four year old, I was having to at least take on some of the emotions and feelings that like a 30 year old woman was not able to deal with that kind of feeling of isolation, that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of Mm. worry, scared, fear. And a lot of the time, every time she saw something that she wouldn't like about how I was treated. So whenever she felt like, oh, my grandparents would be nicer to my cousins than they would be to me, for example, she'd make a point to let me know it, which obviously wasn't, her intention wasn't to hurt me. But obviously when you're a child, that really does affect how you view yourself and how you view yourself in relation to the rest of the world. But at the same time, she was always very receptive to my feelings. It's just that when, when you're already dealing with someone else's feelings so much, it's very hard to then be open about your own. Our parents really are doing the best they can with the resources they have. I really believe that even at pretty extreme cases because hurt people hurt people, you know? And yeah. so they only know what, they, what they've what they been raised to know, but it is so harmful to put your own fears insecurities onto a child that is that is just this clean slate of self-love and that is how we slowly but surely start to question if something's wrong with us exactly and I I was born a very sensitive child like I came Mm -hmm. out the womb a very very sensitive child I think had that been recognized and had that been nurtured Things would have gone very differently had that been recognized earlier on. And it was something that had been willing to be you know, dealt with appropriately. But my mom was going through hell. She was having a very, very hard time herself. And more importantly, she never did anything with a bad intention in her heart. And for that, for yes. that reason alone, I can forgive her for everything. But I think it's so beautiful that you're able to look at your relationship with your mom like that. 
Thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, I still think my dad's a malignant narcissist. And he's fine. Shit. There are parents out there who are so supremely abusive and harmful to their kids and their family that there is no excuse there. So I want to make that clear too. Yeah. And unfortunately, my dad is one of those people. I think he's a very abusive man. I won't, I won't, I won't beat around the bush with that. I mean, I, after I came back from um, Paris, which we spoke about earlier, uh, I, I had to move back in with him and it very quickly descended into me kind of realizing the kind of level of control gas and a lot of buzzwords about these, but a lot of gaslighting mm-hmm. manipulation and a lot of just straight up lying tone policing and not, and not in the like tiktok sense i mean in the very genuine like actual way what are some examples of your dad you know gaslighting you tone policing you i actually don't even yeah. know what tone policing means is that bad T- tone policing is like a um I guess the idea behind it is that you're responding to the tone or the inflections in my voice rather than the content of my words. Mm. And to an extent, yeah, if I'm shouting at you, even if I'm shouting at you a lullaby, I'm still shouting at you and that's not going to be appreciated. But it was to the extent that if I wasn't speaking like a monotone robot at any point, it was immediately, oh, you're shouting. Oh, you're screaming. That is what happened mm. to me so often. And that, that, that doesn't add, that doesn't, you know, that adds fuel to the fire mm-hmm. every time. There's no mm-hmm. way that it doesn't do that. He once said to me, Kabir, you're the most delusional person I've ever met. But someone like you needs to be that delusional. Because if even for a second you realized how bad you truly were, you'd kill yourself in an instant. If I were you, I would have killed myself a long time ago. Wait a minute. Your dad yeah. said that to you? And that's like pretty standard. Of like Can you just of- tell me what precipitated that fucking horrific statement? I that that was a few years ago. I don't really exactly remember what it was. It was in the middle of a fight. That was obviously a really fucked up example, but that general kind of vibe was was yeah. I mean, it was that was what I grew up around. That's what I was used to. And obviously, occasionally it descends into physical abuse as well. Nothing too bad, but enough to scream and shout about it. Um, and it was and obviously my grandparents lived in the same house. And God bless their soul. Their souls. Um, I. As much as I appreciate the fact they did care about me and love me, I can't help but look at them a lot of the time and be like, but you're cowards. Things really kind of came to a turning point this year where I kind of had to move back in after like obviously being at uni for two, two and a half years. And it just, you know, I was going insane because I was becoming more and more aware of what was going on around me. And Mm -hmm. as I was becoming more aware, obviously I was speaking up about it more. And I had my grandparents who would say stuff to me behind my back. Then when I called it out in public in front of my dad, act as if I had never said a single thing and, and literally say to my face, you're making this up, you're lying about it. I think it's because they were scared of him. I think it's, I mean, it's a variety of things. I think, but yeah, I think largely it lies in fear. Mm. Um, or just not because, wanting to go against the grain, right? Just being like, I don't want to exactly. be involved in this. Well, I, yeah, and I don't think people realize like, when you get a very, when you get a particularly abusive household like that, especially when there is one kind of what I will call dominant abuser, mm. you like you shouldn't like the only way to look at that kind of mentality that goes on in that household or in any household like that is like a cult. And a lot yes. of people who actually leave like um, domestic abuse or abusive situations have to go through cult deprogramming programs because that is the kind of mentality you get instilled with when you are in the environment with someone who you know obviously it's not my place to diagnose, but someone who has very clearly narcissistic tendencies like that. I'm assuming your dad was the financial provider and it's like they just want to shut up and not upset the homeostasis, the the fucked up homeostasis, not that it's homeostasis at all. I've heard of kids with BPD being almost referred to as a canary in the coal mine. You know, that theory where basically you are the only one that can see something's wrong. And so, because you're the one that's going, I see some, I know something's wrong. I'm a highly sensitive child. I perceive that this is not right. And so I'm going to stand up for it. And everyone in the family just kind of watches you like they're crazy, but it's like, no, this dynamic is crazy. I've I've never heard anything that kind of speaks to my soul more. Like, like (laughs) at that, like it, it, it was that moment where, I, where you were saying that and explaining that, that I just kind of put my hand to my face and was yeah. just like, oh, that also played into so much of why I found it really hard to love myself, why it really fucked me up during my teenagers, why I was really good at being a bitch when I was 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. 16, because you don't grow up in that kind of household and not learn how to have an extremely fiery tongue. No. Because 
this is the thing like it's not like I was just going to sit there and take it obviously you throw that back and you throw it back with the same kind of fire you throw it back and that scares me I think yes. ultimately because and think about I, this Kabir like you you became a bitch at school potentially I'm just like theorizing here but mm. like you became a bitch at school because when people like us we grow up where our households, our emotional battlefields, we go outside and think, wow, if this was what it's like at home, I need to be a real fucking bitch out here. Exactly. No, completely. I mean, my dad literally always used to say to me, the reason I'm so tough on you outside this house, inside this house is because the real world's going to be so much tougher on you. Wow. Like that was the logic and that was the reasoning. Like your mother's extreme anxiety, your dad, extreme anger, right? But both, both of those attitudes reflected this world is a scary place full of people that are going to hurt you. 100%. Also that feeling of shame, discomfort for for being who I was. And that tied into a lot more than just my parents. That was, you know, growing up as a fat brown queer kid in a generally relatively privileged, white-dominated London circle, you know? Like my grandparents are immigrants. They came, my granddad came to this country and was a librarian and did, you know, did the kind of classic American dream kind of vibe just mm-hmm. in the UK. And so I was lucky enough to be sent to a really, really good school um for my secondary school and but it it was a complete kind of culture shock in the sense that everyone knows everyone Mm -hmm. it's very kind and everyone's parents knows everyone's parents too and wealth is not spoken about because it's assumed and but fine there are some amazing people within that circle and there are amazing things but it is you know it's a microcosm of of the one percent if the, the you know the one percent of the one percent in some cases like you know you would have some kids who were just ordinary kids like me but you would have some kids whose parents were literal billionaires or parents whose like kids were, were like or kids whose parents were famous and you know it, it, it was like I don't want to compare it to my gossip girl which is obviously so over the top and heightened and I mean it's a really toxic environment to be in especially mm-hmm. one especially if it's one that you don't really feel like you were meant to be in you know yes. I was the kid who wasn't born into that kind of like super ridiculous amount of money I was just lucky enough to be able to afford the school that I go to and I was still very privileged I'm not gonna pretend that I wasn't but it was nothing compared to that from the offset I remember from like a young age there was always that feeling of being an outsider even in primary school whether it was because of my skin color whether it's because of my family situation because you know I had teachers pulling me out of classes I had social workers coming to school when I was in primary school to come try and chat to me so this was before I had really entered that kind of private school West London bubble uh, but it was because I think the first time was because they were just aware a lot of shit was going on at home with um with my parents and when they were getting divorced and separated. And then the second time was because my they had heard that I had a physical altercation with my dad. But I was 10. Like, the, 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 it, was, it was hardly a fight, clearly. But I, I don't remember exactly what happened. But I remember my parents telling me, like, you need to be careful with what you say. Don't give away too much because they will take you away. Your life will be different. And they would very much use like in any any means of control or psychological control they they would use so like even the fact that i was lucky enough to go to a private school as opposed to a public school was something that was actively weaponized and it wasn't even done through the threat of removal it was through kind of demonizing public schools like in a very vicious and very like disgusting way um and and then using that as a threat to, and you know when you're 7 8 9 10 you don't know any better you haven't yet gone out into the world and educated yourself on classism, things like race. You know what I mean? Yes. Like knowledge is power. I think people don't realize this. And I remember you saying this in one of your earlier podcasts, BPD people tend to be relatively intellectual people. And as a result of that, I think people often fail to realize that as long as we can understand and know about those kind of frameworks and patterns of behavior that we have that are unhealthy, that is it's not just the first step that's like the first five steps because not only are you beginning to realize how it works you immediately become aware of it and I think it it would you know it it takes a lot to not to be aware of it see it in action and not then try and call it out you know I think for me one of the big turning points was and I, I largely credit you know podcasts and pages like yours like understanding BPD like from borderline to beautiful for for that huge change in mindset because I think for a long time as well, because I kind of knew I had BPD from the age of 16. Instead of really Googling recovery, I was just learning more and more about the illness itself. And I think I really did begin to fetishize it and really, really begin to romanticize it in the way that I was aware of the problems it was causing in my life. 
but I saw it as this kind of almost like romantically beautiful thing that I was capable of such capacity for emotion. Mm. I think to an extent, fine, that's true. I love the fact that I can feel happiness in a crazy way that most people can't very easily, but I've got to acknowledge that this is an illness that is infinitely more harmful than it is good. A, I stopped victimizing myself so much in all of it. And yes, fine, in, in a large way, I am a victim. I'm a victim of my circumstance. I'm a victim of a lot of things, but I couldn't let myself victimize myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was, it was, was kind of putting my big boy boots on and just mm-hmm. being like, well, no one else is going to get you better. Stop viewing this like some kind of beautiful romantic thing. You're not in a fucking telenovela. Did you feel like you were kind of addicted to drama? Because for me, I absolutely was. But also just because of the way that like, our illness has been portrayed in the media at large. Like we, not only do we become our BPD and so heavily like overly identify with it, like, but we do live for the drum. We don't recognize how it's unhealthy for, I think for a long time, I kind of almost wanted to be the manic pixie dream girl. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it comes from a lack of identity to an extent, doesn't it? When you don't know yourself and you see this kind of caricature of a lot of the traits that you do have, but in a way that is romanticized and and conceptualized in, 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 you know, in this kind of creative, mysterious, and nonetheless, obviously quite alluring way that that's, that's something that obviously I'm going to want to identify with uh, for yeah. uh, when I was young. It, it's the whole, like, I'm not like other girls kind of thing, but, but it, but it was like that because I knew that I wasn't like other girls. Maybe yes. because I had a penis and was severely mentally ill, but like, uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Dying. but, um, there is something really interesting about the way in which BPD people connect with other people. It feels like it simultaneously fluctuates between either being really deep, genuine, intense connections or it feeling like it's not real, if that makes sense. I think that's also quite why I feed into like the queerness and the campness of it all. I like things to be exciting. And I think that that will always be a part of me that will remain. Like, I do like big emotions. I do like, like, I like, I like to feel alive. I think what are the biggest obstacle for us with BPD is learning to feel alive even in the moments of solitude and boredom. I think that's what I'm still trying to work on the most. That's the hard part. I find it very hard to be an intrinsic like motivator for myself. Mm-hmm. I find it very hard to like you know do hard things and often do things for myself. I have so many people reaching out to me saying that they struggle with their sexual identity, with their gender identity, and BPD. If you have any advice or things you can share about sexual and gender identity, I'd love to hear what you would say to like a younger version of yourself. I think as people with BPD, we are prone to question ourselves a lot more and The thing is, I think with something like your gender identity, your sexual orientation, as fluid as they may or may not be, it is something that takes time to first learn for yourself and understand for yourself, but then be to then come to terms with and express to the outer world. Your gender identity and your sexual orientation aren't who you are. They're a part of who you are and they will influence a big part of your life, undoubtedly so. But you are a person beyond that. And while they may influence it, you are so much more than just that. For, for queer people who aren't heteronormative in any way, it can feel very lonely and it can feel very isolating. I know a bunch of kids who at the age of 15 downloaded Grinder, slept with some old man. And I think this is the most important thing to realize. You are vulnerable. Whether you realize it or not, you need to protect yourself and you need to take those measures to protect yourself. Don't go seeking external validation. Definitely don't go ex- seeking external validation from older men. I, I mean, I was sleeping around with older men up until about like a year and a half ago. And I mean like men twice my age. I would have How been old like, are you now? I'm 21 now. As much as you may like to think it, you're not m- more mature for your age. You're not, you know, they're not different or understanding. They're a predator. Yes. And they're a creep. I was 16 when some, he was probably in his mid 40s who was married and had kids and had me come over to his house. And I thought Mm. I was the shit. I thought I was so grown up. I thought like no one in my grade could even understand how much like more mature I was. And now I look back and I shudder. I had a really quite similar experience when I was like 15 on holiday in a hotel sauna. 
And there was this much older man, probably, I was what, 14? He was probably like 28, 30. I found out later he he was married to a woman and I think he had kids. Some stuff happened in that sauna, nothing too bad, nothing too egregious. And at the time I was like, oh my God, I did stuff with a married guy with kids, blah, blah, blah. And then two years later, I was like, okay, he was like three times my age and that was sexual assault. What the fuck? And that's what's not spoken about enough. In the moments of us being sexually violated by an adult when we are children, it is absolutely possible to be sexually violated and think that it's fine and you're enjoying it at the time. That is not talked about enough, right? 100%. 100%. I was relating in that moment to how easy it is for young young people to be kind of wooed by an older person. You feel so special to exactly. have someone older and hotter and like successful. Like you feel so special, but because they know the power dynamics at play, they're preying on you. Exactly. And so this is the thing. I didn't really have a lot of like queer friends until I was like 17 or older. So when I was younger, the more of the age gap relationships I saw were with like straight girls and their boyfriends. And I remember I had a few friends who would, you know, you get those like few girls who are always dating older guys. That's not shade. That's not a read. But, you know, like I had friends who were like 16, 17 and they'd be dating like 28 year olds, 29 year olds. And I know at the time, like we used to be like, oh, well, those girls are really mature for their age. And that's how I would rationalize it, too. I was like, these girls are really, really mature, very cool girls who like just who know what they're doing. And mm-hmm. they don't have a fucking clue. Like I didn't have a clue what I was doing when I was 18. I still don't have a clue what I'm doing. But I know at the age of 21, I probably wouldn't even do stuff with like an 18 year old. Like for me, yep. that is too much of a maturity because those three years are so formative. What kind of. If at the age of 21, I'm not willing to do stuff with someone who's like 18 or 17, what the fuck is a 25-year-old, 26-year-old, 27-year-old thinking? Well, I mean, they know exactly what they're thinking. Exactly. And so for people, for queer people who think or see older people in that, in who are of that age and being approached by people of that age, honestly, just wait till you get to that age and yes. you'll see how fucked up it is. You'll you see will. how fucked up that mindset is. I feel like that part of the podcast is just maybe the most important thing because it's just not spoken about. We talk about sexual assault collectively. Typically, you you envision a, a very stereotypical sexual assault where someone is being forced against their will and they're, they're screaming, no, 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 right? This is the yeah. image that we all have in our minds of rape, I think, and sexual mm. assault and trauma. It is not black and white. What happened to you in that sauna, regardless of how much pleasure you experienced, regardless of whether how much you thought you were the shit afterwards, that was sexual abuse. I know, exactly. And like, it became this real kind of double-edged sword of like both sexual repulsion and like overt sexual behavior, neither of which really were particularly me because I recognize myself as a particularly sexual being, but someone who is nonetheless a bit more traditional in that way, if you know what I mean. And it really has largely destroyed my perception of of sex it's only over the last few months where I've been like I don't want to be having random grinder hookup it it, now it's about finding out what I like what I genuinely want to do do I want am I doing this because I want to do it or am I doing this to quite literally fill a hole and I love how you said you actually consider yourself to be more quote-unquote traditional I'd love you to elaborate on that. I was acting like this really hypersexual person. And there are people out there who are kinky and they go out there hypersexual in the most grounded, fully integrated way. Those people exist because I don't ever want anyone to listen to my podcast or read my content and make me think that I'm kink shaming or that I am not thinking that people should be out there and like sleeping with a bunch of people. Listen, if you're doing that from a healthy space inside and you can sit down and say, you're not just trying to get validation and you're not exacerbating your mental health problems. I'm like power to you go do your thing. But Mm. for me, I can't count the amount of times that I didn't really want to have sex. And I just did because I thought that that's what I needed to do or that I had to pretend like I wanted it all the time or to present myself in this way. And I never actually found out what my true sexuality was. I resonate with what you're saying about being a little more traditional. Can you elaborate on what you mean Mm. by that? I would say I'm a very like sexually open person. I definitely view myself as one in the sense that, um, you know, who doesn't love a good sex club or a good sex party from time to time? But at the same time, I wasn't doing it from a healthy perspective. Part of me was sleeping around for external validation rather than the fact that I wanted to sleep around. You know, I've always been a very sexual person obviously that's partially the bpd too but i've done the whole sex club thing i've done the whole sex party thing and i enjoy it and it's good but when i 
talk about something a bit more traditional. I think it's just because I want to explore and re-explore sex for myself in a healthy, safe environment. And for me, that means that I would like to do it within the context of a relationship. After that one relationship in which I've got to get in touch with myself and another person again sexually on a very deep level, fine, I might be very comfortable sleeping around, doing whatever. But as long as I'm doing it from a healthy perspective and not just because I'm lonely or more more likely because I'm just really bored. That's kind of what I want to aim for. And when I say traditional, I just mean I'm a hopeless romantic. You want to find your person, like you're, you know what I mean? That you can share those freaky experiences with. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I still want to go to the dark room in Berlin, but I want to do it with a specific person. I want to do it with someone that I feel that level of comfort with and that level of intimacy with, because I think so much of who I am has always been a very loving overly affectionate person and I am an overly affectionate person just by force of habit tell my mom and my sister I love them randomly about 20 times a day and I I think that's the best way to be because there is such a huge amount of emotion always going on within me I want to be able to use sex as a mechanism for positive emotion I was really just using sex as as a form of self-harm when I saw your post the other day saying that I was actually like so shook because I had never heard anyone else besides myself use that as like a a phrase like sex Mm -hmm. and self-harm Mm-hmm. And it was only like eight months, a year ago, where I was realized the way in which I'm having sex, the way in which I'm sleeping around is not healthy. But more importantly, it's not what I want to be doing. And I think a big part of that and that journey is a beginning to learn to fall in love with myself, getting in touch with myself sexually again. And yes. then beyond that, being able to extend that to someone else. But it's about but there's no urgency with it. I think before there was felt like there was an urgency to do it not like an urgency to lose my virginity but just an urgency in general when it came it's to it's the impulsivity right that's a that. whole a huge part of bpd it's almost like it's the itch you can't scratch you feel like you have to text that person i have to go dye my exactly. hair today i have to go get a piercing today i have to go i need them to tell me they love me right now i need you know what i mean i've, I've done all of those things in the last 48 hours so completely <laughs> really if we can all just believe that at the core of us is is someone who is really worth loving who just grew up with this fucked up set of frameworks that we developed to protect ourselves, we can find peace slowly but surely. And that brings me into my next question for you is, what does recovery look like for you? For me, recovery is I have a counselor slash therapist who I can talk to, who's like a proper psychotherapist who specializes in BPD, but doesn't do TBT. She's amazing because it's just someone who I can talk to, structure my thoughts with, process my emotions with. And then a big part of it is also a lot more personal introspection. And yes, fine, I bought a couple of DBT workbooks and they're great and they're helpful. But it's so much more than just beyond the skills for me at this point, because I'm learning to manage myself in a more functional way. I'm learning to look after myself. I'm learning to instill myself with a greater amount of self-love. And I think that's what it really is for me. It mm. is all about that self-love journey. What because is self-love to, me, to you? Self-love to me is just knowing that I do have inherent value and worth as a person it's not necessarily dictated by my actions how I look on a particular day anything external it's just the simple fact that I'm a child of this universe and as a result of that simple fact I am someone with value with inherent value and that I need to be able to recognize that in myself because I'm so willing to recognize that self-worth in other people why aren't I able to do that for myself and I think that's like the first step and it's a, it takes a lot of like just sitting there talking to myself. It takes a lot of you know, listening to podcasts like this, but it's a very slow process and a conscious process that the conscious part of it is only five, 10 minutes a day or whether it's a couple of hours a day. It's still a process that takes a little bit every day. Fine, part of it also means that I'm learning to motivate myself again. And it means that I'm, I'm forcing myself to do things that I would find hard or I would make excuses not to do. Mm-hmm. It means that I'm putting myself in situations that I would normally run away from, but healthy, safe situations, situations that ultimately are making investments in myself. It's very difficult a lot of the time for BPD people to make active investments in ourselves. Yes. And we're so good at making investments in other people. We put, we, I mean, the amount of emotional investment we put into other people, mm-hmm. into, into the smallest of things. If there's one thing we know how to do, it's emotionally invest. Yes. Yet for some reason, it's incredibly difficult for me to emotionally invest in myself in any kind of positive meaningful long-term way I can dress up I can look really hot I can go on on a night out but that's not really investing in myself in a long way that's just feeling good and chasing some kind of temporary high I used to go out and man I would just live for people hitting on me 
I would just Mm. be so high on that like validation. And then you come home and you feel so empty and you're like, wait, why? Because (laughs) because that's not self-love. Exactly. And then you factor in an app like Grindr and it's game over for every queer person on the planet. What do you think is the most toxic thing about Grindr? The fact that it exists. Like they did like a study on which apps make you feel the worst about yourself once you leave it. Yeah. And and Grindr was out of all the apps in the app store was the one app that you leave feeling infinitely worse on. And yeah, fine. Sometimes I get a lot of attention and validation. Sometimes it's like a thousand people will view my profile in two hours and a ton of people will message me. But it's a microcosm of everything that's wrong with the gay community. There is a lot of racism on it. There's a lot of misogyny on it. There's a lot of um there's a lot I mean, mostly depredatory behavior. If you're in a position where you don't have a lot of self-love, where you don't have a lot of self-worth, when you are just looking whether it's out of boredom or whether it's out of a need for intimacy, you'll like often put yourself in just really stupid and very dangerous position. It's very different from like a one night stand at the club. You're going to someone's house who at most you've seen what less than five photos of you've been speaking to for how long, maybe like 20 minutes at the most, maybe less than 10 messages back and forth. Like, and it's a complete stranger. Like that is a dangerous position to be putting yourself in. So basically what we're trying to say right now, Kabir is saying, if you have Grindr installed, fucking delete it. This is your message now. This is. Let's finish with the lightning round. I did this with my last guest, Kim, and I'm trying to make it a bit of a tradition. Tradition. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a few questions and just keep the answers like short-ish. And then we'll just leave it on this note. So the first question is, what are you afraid of? Men. No. I feel uh, you. What am I afraid of? I think I could be, I think the thing I'm most afraid of is myself in a bad place and I get getting that. myself too bogged down. That's my I biggest fear. What advice would you give to someone who feels alone? There will always be a tiny voice in the back of your head saying, you're not that alone or don't do that thing or keep going. You need to latch onto that voice and forget about any other voice in your head. Latch onto that voice, make that voice your best friend and live with that voice. When do you feel most like an outsider? In, in On the days where I don't feel like I can love myself properly. What are you obsessed with right now? Boys. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I just, just men in general, I think is the problem. The irony of the what are you afraid of answer is men. What are you obsessed with? <laughs> men. I don't think exactly. you need to be a psychologist to to make some parallels here. Yeah. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. Oh, multiple. <laughs> what is a morning routine that if you stick to helps your BPD symptoms? Ooh, exercise in the morning. Whether that's a full-on workout, whether that's a half an hour walk, just any anything to get your blood pumping, to get your day actually started. Because it's so easy to sit on the couch and do fuck all, all day. But yep. the second you have that shower, you do a little bit of gym, do a little bit of a walk, you feel like the day has at least started. What's one thing in life that you're so happy that you did? Ooh, come out. Yes. I think that's my biggest thing. And I'm a very vocal person in both in my political beliefs, both in my social beliefs. And that's all in, inherently tied into my identity. So coming out is more than just me accepting who I am. It is, for me at least, an act of rebellion against a wider society that does not exist to serve me. With the things we're passionate about, that's where we find our identity. It's like Rose in Borderline to Beautiful. She does a whole series, and I've brought it up before, about what are your core values, integrity, yes. honesty, all these things. We, we must- I've, I've got my core values like written up on my fridge next to me like like with like post-it notes. I did this the other day. I look at them every day because it is something, like every morning I read them out to myself. What are they? It is, it, um, mine are kindness, joy, courage, loyalty, integrity, self-discipline, honesty, commitment, respect, and trust. Love it. Those of us with BPD, we've been in a state of reactivity our whole lives. And I don't think often we've had the chance to reflect on these core values and they're inside of us. And I think having just having them as like a set of things that I've written out, so much of you know discovering your identity is you're right it, it does this align with who I want to be does mm. this and not even who I want to be does this align with the person that I like to think of myself as being because yes. I like to think of myself as an honest person I like to think of myself as a very loyal person everyone wants to say that they're, they're a bad bitch without realizing what it is to be a bad bitch and without mm. taking the actions necessary are you to be walking a bad bitch. the bad bitch walk 
or not? I'm trying to. Well, I'm stopping down it, but um, so am you I. Know, we're trying. We're, we're trying. trying. She's really trying. She is trying. She's trying. She is hard. trying. She hard for the money. She really does. Mm. Okay, this is the last question. I couldn't think of a better way to end this. So the last question is: What gives you hope? What gives me hope? Um, things like moments like this, uh, interactions like this, connections with people. Mm. That that's what gives me hope. Like this has been two of the most beautiful hours I've had in such a long time, and it's because oh, you yay. have that. Like like people, especially with BPT, we have this amazing ability to connect with people on a very real way. Yes. And I've always said my greatest talent is people who I who I'm lucky enough to surround myself with. Mm-hmm. The connections I build with people. My biggest talent is the way in which people engage with me, and the way in which I engage with them. And for me, that's what gives me hope. I love it. I just love you. I'm so glad we met each other. I know. You're you're going to be back. So tell my audience where they can find you. Is there a cause that you would like to drive attention to? I'm going to give, I'm going to first do a little self plug and then I might just do two little causes. Do all Um, the self plugging. Yeah. So um, my Instagram handle is Kabir underscore Corona. Um, Try spelling that. I'll put you the links to your Instagram in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. And two amazing causes I would like to shout out is Not A Phase, which is an amazing foundation helping um, support trans youth across the UK. Secondly is Everyone's Invited, which is a cause set up by my friend Sommer, who, who is tackling and really creating a conversation around rape culture in the school system and is really making big change. So I'd like to give a shout out to those two causes. That is amazing. I'm going to link to your Instagram. I'm going to link to Not A Phase so that people can check that out. And thank you so much for being on the show today, Kavir. It was just so lovely. I had such a good time. All right, I'll speak to you soon, love. All right, bye. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.